your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. A few days ago, I got a call from my mom. She told me about a really interesting conversation she had with her masseuse. And it turned out that her masseuse had for a while been on welfare. And even when she became eligible for it, though, she ultimately decided that she wouldn't accept government favors. And her thinking behind those choices was really intriguing to me. And so uh, I'm happy to be able to have Hope on join us today to tell her about how she thinks about welfare and the kind of experiences she's had both on it and off it. So with that, Hope, welcome to the Debt Dialogues. Hi, Don. So Hope, why don't you just uh, tell us a little bit about your background and uh, how you got to where you are today? All right. Well, I am a 24-year-old single mother. I'm currently working as a massage therapist in three different locations, trying to you know make ends meet. Um, I've got a beautiful five-year-old little boy who is the center of my world, and you know we just try to get through each day and you know look for the silver lining in life and work hard so we can play hard and actually you know enjoy and respect what we have. Um, trying to make it work in Northern Virginia pretty hard out here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you guys, I, I'm from Northern Virginia, and it's kind of like where I live now in Orange County, which is uh, it, everything's basically, you know, 25% more expensive than it is anywhere else in the country. Um, so, I mean, th- you're kind of in a situation that is tr- uh, often pointed to by politicians and people who claim to speak in the name of of, you know, uh, us struggling Americans. And the typical portrayal is that you, like, you depend on handouts from the government in order to make ends meet, and that, indeed, the people who oppose expanding those kinds of programs um, are all, you know, the the greedy rich people who don't want uh, to provide you with the help you need. So let me ask you this. Um have you benefited from those programs and are you eager to benefit more from them? Well, what I'd like to say is that I've been on both sides of welfare. The state of Virginia did help me when I needed them in order when I made the choice to have a baby. Um, It is a personal choice. I was a young pregnant teenage mother without health insurance, without any benefits. I was this, you know, young college kid who had a big heart and a big dream and, you know, knew that I could manage all of it with a little bit of help. Um, And I did have a baby on welfare and I chose to only receive benefits for a short amount of time. Um, I did have my son on Medicaid for the first 
six months of his life, and after that, I found us our own health insurance because I didn't necessarily like the process of going through Medicaid. I didn't like going down to the WIC office and picking up checks, and I found it, you know, embarrassing to have to sit there and count in my calculator, you know, oh, how much money do I get to spend on a gallon of milk? Well, can you actually pause pause on that for a second? Can you talk a little bit about that process? Because most of us usually just think, okay, there's this program, and it helps people, but they have no clue what it actually looks like to try to uh partake in those programs? Well, I think my experience was actually probably a little different than most. Um, when I found out I was pregnant, I went to a very pro-life um, gynecologist. And I walked in there and I you know, I didn't really know what to do. I looked up in the phone book, the first place that would take someone who didn't have insurance. Um, and they actually helped me sit down and figure out how to file for Medicaid. Um, they were very helpful to show me what kind of programs and how to show my pay stubs um, and what I could qualify for. You know, I was living and, you know, I was, I was renting a room from someone and I wasn't making a lot of money. Um, and the process of which office to go to, which phone number do you call, I mean, it is kind of a rigmarole trying to set up an appointment and have all the paperwork that you need to go. But once you sit there and those you know, government run offices for hours waiting for your appointment, you know, with a lot of people there filling out these booklets of paperwork um, to try and get an approval. Once they do approve you, it's actually very easy. Um, almost too easy. Almost too easy just to go in and say, okay, I'm here to pick up my checks. Well, you haven't checked my pay stubs in a year. You know, what I was making last year is not what I'm making this year. What kind of information are they asking for, though, initially? Um, they're asking for, you know, they do ask for the basics of, you know, your age, your race, your income. Um, if you're a student, when was the last time you had a checkup? Um, they do ask for your basic health questions, um, kind of what we're going through now with electronic health care and those types of things. Um, but it, it's just paperwork. It's just paper pushers, <laughs> someone that's going to look at the answers, enter it in a computer and see if you're approved or not. Um, you know, there are a lot of people that can go in and manipulate those answers or only show half of their income or lie to say that they're not living with someone when they are. And, you know, what I had noticed going through that process is, you know, there are a lot of people in there that I personally knew that were a lot better off than I was still receiving benefits. Uh, yeah, so let's get back then to, um, you know, you have your child and uh, it, it, now you decide that you don't want to be on uh, Medicaid anymore or you don't want him to be on Medicaid anymore. Um, what's What happens next? Well, I had had him on Medicaid for six months after he was born and it came time to renew the policy. And... Um, you know, with the paperwork coming into a mailbox and having to go down to another office, you know, as soon as my son was born, I went back to work at six weeks with him on my back. I took him to work with me because um, I was very determined. I was very determined to provide for him. And, you know, I was a 19-year-old mom just trying to make it work. Um, and child care was very expensive. And, you know, I wanted to bond with my baby. And try and grow my profession. I was just starting out in my own massage business and trying to gather clients and really scrambling as young people do when you're building something. Um, so it came to a point where, you know, we were without insurance for about a month. 
you know, the paperwork came in, I looked at it, I shoved it with all the other paperwork I was supposed to look at. And I decided that, you know, I was making enough money to where I could provide him with his own health insurance, mm-hmm. that I didn't have to drive, you know, 45 minutes away to go pick up with checks to buy a free gallon of milk. I can buy my own gallon of milk for $3. It cost me $3 in gas to go down there and get it. <laughs> um, so it was, it was a convenient thing. And it was, you know, did I really need it? Did I really need that help when I was doing it on my own? Um, and it came to a point where I decided that I wanted my son to realize that nobody in life gives you things. People will help you when you need it, but only take it when you need it. You know, there are a lot of other people out there that are a lot needier than we are. And, you know, I'm able to work and I want to work. And he's not, you know, he's not, the government's not responsible for feeding my child. If you can't feed them, don't breed them. (laughs) It it comes down to a sense of of personal responsibility. And I didn't necessarily think that the government needed to help me. I wanted his father to help me. And that's when I got involved in looking at welfare and, and the state of our country. And, you know, I became a young business owner and I became a little more successful and, um, and, and very proud. I'm very stubbornly independent. That's how my parents raised me, that you accept the consequences of your actions. And, and I was a young teenage mom. That was the consequence of my actions was, you know, I put this little person on the planet and it's my job to take care of him. It's not anybody else's job. You know, it was me and this man, and we decided to have a baby. And, um, you know, it got to a point where I realized that, you know, it wasn't the government's job to help me raise my son. It was his father's job. And then I started doing research and looking at welfare, looking at all aspects of welfare, whether it be food stamps, Medicaid, Social Security, veterans, mental illness. And what I realized was that 40% of all of our welfare goes to single mothers is that we're left, you know, yes, we are young teenage mothers. We, one reason or another, we're left alone to provide for these children. Um, But it takes more than just one person to make a child. And, you know, I I wanted to make a point to my son's father was, you know, he kept telling me, he's like, you know, if you guys are hungry and you're having a hard time making ends meet, why don't you go to the WIC office? Go get some help. And I would tell him, it's it's not Uncle Sam's job to help me pay for our son. It's your job. You know, I'm not going to go and take a day off to go sit around in an office waiting for someone to give me a handout when you should be going somewhere and getting a job. You should be helping me raise this baby. It is not anyone else's purpose but ours because that's our son. And I want him to know, you know, you have to, if you don't work, you don't eat, baby. You know, we work hard. That's the only way you get anywhere in life. That's how our country was built, was by people who work really hard for those things. And I and I still, to this day, you know, he asks me, you know, Mommy, why do you have to work all the time? But, you know, baby, I'm building us a life. You know, I have to work so that you have, you know, Legos to play with. And, you know, I work so that we can take vacations. You know, and I work really hard for that, six days a week. You know, I'm up at 7, and I go to sleep at probably about 11, 11 or 12, after bedtime stories and paperwork and clients, and it's a lot to keep track of, but, you know, I, I feel better doing it on my own than doing it with someone's, you know, someone's charity. Well, can you, I mean, that would, that's an interesting thing. Can you contrast just what it, the, the difference in how it feels and how your life in general feels between receiving income from the government versus receiving it from working in a, in a situation where the work, it takes a lot of time and is really hard? 
I, um, when it came down to it was, I, I felt a lot better. I felt a lot better being able to say to my son. And, and again, a lot of it came, comes from my stubbornness. Um, and my issues with, with being a single mother and, and having a, a part-time dad in his life and, and the responsibility factor is, um, you know, my mother taught me that no one, no one in life will give you something. You have to go get it. And I felt so good being able to honestly earn a paycheck is that I make people feel better. I take pain away from people. I, I give something back to society and I feel so good about it. I love what I do. I go to work every day and it's not a job. You know, I get to talk to amazing people and hear their stories and be able to share mine. And it's, it's a learning experience. That's the human experience is when you give something back because that's what life is about. It's gratuity. It's, it's being thankful for what you have. And when you work for something, you're so much more grateful for it. When someone gives you something, you don't appreciate it. My parents gave me a car and I totaled it and, and <laughs> six months, you know, it was only when I went out with my hard, honest, earned money that I was like, okay, you got to like change the oil every 3000 miles and you, you take care of things that you work for because I, you know, I, I get up and I, my blood, sweat and tears go into my work. Um, and it, it shows in my lifestyle. It shows in the way that I take care of things. Um, and I really appreciate it a lot more. You know, the food that I eat just tastes better. And, and the time off that I do get with my son is so much sweeter because I know what it means to work so I can really appreciate the downtime. I can really appreciate those little golden moments of, you know, being able to take him to the park or the zoo or, or take that time with him. Um, as opposed to people who, you know, they don't have to struggle. It's only when people struggle do they actually change. It's only when you hit rock bottom do you want to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Unfortunately, in America now, people think, well, if no one will help me, why should I help myself? If you can't help yourself and you don't have that drive to want to pick yourself up, why should anyone go out of their way to help you? And that's, you know, again, back to why I am so stubborn about welfare is because it's not, it's not the government's job to take care of those who know how to take care of themselves. People take advantage of that because the government will. Well, so one, uh, I'm, I'm interested in, uh, it, it sounds like you're doing quite well in your uh, job. And I'm curious if you could give us a little bit of how you got, you know, started in it and started building a career for yourself. Because a lot of people think that, well, unless other people provide me with opportunity, I don't really stand a chance. But clearly you weren't starting out with, you know, somebody handing you a million bucks and saying, all right, <laughs> go at it. Not at all. My, um, I was, you know, I was very fortunate in the lifestyle that I grew up in. Um, I am the youngest of four children and my dad was a chiropractor and I grew up in healthcare and I found, um, you know, I, I graduated high school a year early cause I wanted, I didn't like public school. <laughs> I didn't like having to be there. I didn't like, you know, the high school experience in public schools. So I, I got out of high school a year early and went straight to massage school because um, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. It was something that my father had taught me really young. He taught me a skill. And, and I'm very passionate about making people feel better and making a difference in their lives. Um, so I, I, you know, I was fortunate enough to get um, 
to, to sign up for massage school. I did get an associate's degree. Um, and that's probably what the biggest difference was, is that I started off with getting an education. I didn't wait like most kids do. You know, they, they take their education for granted. And I was very grateful for the opportunities that I received. Um, and, and my parents, they made me work for it. You know, my father did help me. Um, you know, he helped me pay for half of my education. He said, you know, I've got, you've got $10,000 and the rest of it's on you, babe, because I want to make sure that you, you wake up for class every day because you will be paying it off. Um, so they did give me a sense of responsibility. They gave me some traction in life to make me, you know, grow up a little bit and get some friction. You know, shortly thereafter, I got a little more friction than I was expecting um, with becoming a young mother. But I started off with a massage table in the back of my car, and, and I went around to doctor's offices in Fairfax, and, and I was, again, stubborn, and I didn't want to use my father or his reputation as a chiropractor, so I started working for someone else in Fairfax, and, you know, I met the right people, and I networked. I did happy hours at bars, and, and I did... Um, you know, women's tea parties and chair massage, and, and I would set up in, in a mall and just, you know, hey, take five minutes, come relax. If you like it, then, you know, here's my number and my contact information. I'm licensed. And it, it really just took a lot of hard work and networking um, to where I've gotten today. When I started massaging professionally five years ago, I could only do two or three hours a day, but my son needed more than what I was making. So I just, I worked. I worked, I hustled, I'd stay, I was the first one there and I was the last one leaving. I would sit around and just talk to people. That's how you, that's how you grow is you, you listen to people's stories and, and they give you little tidbits of advice. You know, try this, read this, you know, my experience was this and you, you really just have to listen. You know, our elders have a lot more advice than we're even willing to listen to because we think it's old timers. Well, our old timers took care of us, and next thing you know, we'll be taking care of them. It's the fundamentals that, you know, my, my great-grandparents came here with was $45 in their pocket and a dream, and I wanted the same thing. I might have had a baby on my back and, and a, you know, a 15-year-old car that had no air conditioning in it, but... I knew that if I worked really hard that I would be able to get somewhere. And I'm finally at a point where I don't, I'm not, I'm not trying to survive. I've actually built some building blocks where I'm thriving and I'm succeeding and, and I'm comfortable. It's taken a long time and I've sacrificed a lot and my son has sacrificed a lot, but we, we're, we're going to make it. <laughs> uh, I'm curious if you've encountered, I mean, what obstacles from the government you've encountered. I don't know. I know in some places, massage therapy, you have to get all kinds of licenses and so on. And I mean, obviously, uh, you know, the harder you work, the bigger your tax burden. Um, But how have you perceived those kinds of obstacles? Well, I will say um, I have received some obstacles. And when it comes to, you know, I have had to do the licensures and, and state board of nursing licensing and um, it started with, with steps, you know, I started off as an employee and then I started, you know, cause I was like, I don't even know what to do about my taxes. You know, I just want someone else to take them out for me and I'll, I'll do my taxes at the end of the year. And then I became an independent contractor with a country club. Um, 
and started learning a little bit more about setting money aside to pay Uncle Sam. And, and last year, it was kind of a big milestone. I incorporated a business um, and became a business owner and have been learning about financing at a young, you know, as a young person trying to manage money and pay the bills. And, you know, you, you, I have had obstacles. Um, and, you know, the biggest problem that I've probably had is, Again, I am too stubborn to receive assistance from from the government, um, and it can't. You know, last year it came down to a point: was do I pay daycare? Or do I pay my taxes? You know, money was tight. I only make a certain dollar amount a month, and Northern Virginia is an expensive area to live in. Um, and trying to provide the best for my son has been expensive. His preschool is more than my rent even costs. Um, and his father is involved in his life, but he doesn't help us financially. So it came to a point was like, okay, if you're not going to pay your child support, which is a, a state run program, if he's not going to pay the state and I'm not going to receive benefits for my son, you know, what do I do? And currently right now I'm going to pay the IRS back some money because <laughs> it, it, it did get really tight there. It was just barely enough to break even, and, and I finally built my practice up enough to where I'm bringing in a little more than what's going out. Um, and part of it's, you know, my son's age is that, thank goodness, he'll be going to public school next year, <laughs> and I won't have to pay for preschool, and life will be a little bit more manageable from there. Um, but taxes, taxes are, you know, they are an issue. You know, I don't want Uncle Sam to be, you know, my son's, you know, father figure, but he is kind of my pimp in a way. I'll give him 30 percent. And, <laughs> you know, Uncle Sam isn't my baby daddy, but he is my pimp. <laughs> so uh, we often hear about uh, inequality and that this is a big problem and that we should be really resentful because there's these one percent making millions. Why the rest of us are just trying to struggle how do you react when you hear those kinds of proclamations? I think the people out there that are making millions have worked really hard to get there. I think some of them, yes, have been entitled and they've been born into the right family and given the right opportunities, but that's all of life. Life isn't made to be easy. I People tell me life is so hard. I look at them, I was like, who told you it would be easy? You know, the more we struggle, the more we grow. And the more we look at ourselves and our families and we're, we're grateful, it's the little things in life that we should be excited about, not, not the materialistic things. Um, and when it comes to that 1% and, and you start looking at economics and how they get tax cuts, well, you know, so do the poor. They get benefits. They get, quote, unquote, an entitlement <laughs> from the government. I don't think we're entitled to anything but, you know, love and, and fresh air. Uh yeah, there's. Uh, well, I just want to uh, interject. So this is um, you're hitting on a really important attitude that actually is one of the central themes in Ayn Rand's novel Atlas Shrugged. One of the key distinctions she names between her heroes and her villains is that her heroes recognize that life is demanding and they eagerly embrace those demands and they really seek to constantly improve to to exert the effort necessary to really make something of their lives and that the villains are the people who resent the demands of life and just want they in effect wish that they could have everything passively and that uh it, it's really a key distinction between people are they um, do they recognize that life requires effort and embrace that as a challenge that they can step up and meet, or do they resent it and try to avoid it and evade it? 
I think that's a really strong statement. I think uh, a lot of people have a different view on it in these times because, you know, because of how fast-paced society is, because of our technology and how we can have anything at an instant, you know, 24-hour food access and and 24-hour Internet access. I mean, people really do get things at the snap of the finger these days. Um, but let's go back into our history. You know, people came here with nothing and they became farmers and, and they sweat and they bleed and they cry and they, they have to work hard. Um, because that's, you know, with, with every painting of life, when you're looking at life, it's a puzzle. And, and sometimes you get that you know, 3D geometrical puzzle and it's difficult, but you feel so much better when you've completed it, when you found all the corner pieces and you've found all the shades of blue that you could possibly look for um, to create that picture of life. It's the diversity and the dexterity and, and the struggle that actually makes it beautiful. You know, it's it's the terrible twos of a child that you hate and you love all at the same time because it's so hard, but at the same time, it's so beautiful because that's the way it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be easy, and I don't know anyone who ever said that it was. Bill Gates is a billionaire, but he had the brain power and an idea that took him somewhere. You know, some people are born into having an easier lifestyle, but for the rest of us, you know, it starts with laying one brick down at a time. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. People get overwhelmed with their lifestyles, so that's mind over matter. You know, they choose to feel that way. They choose they choose to feel that way. People that grow up on welfare expect welfare, but, you know, didn't your great great granddaddy work hard to provide, you know, buy whatever it is that his family needed and, and pass that, you know, pass that down? I have no idea where that disappeared in our country, why people expect things. Um, no one's really ever been given anything. So I'm curious, how have people reacted to your decision to forego welfare and to do it on your own? Well, I got a lot of feedback in a, in a lot of ways. I had a lot of people who were very impressed um, and were like, wow, you know, you, you're, you're going to do it, you know, and if you don't, then we'll, you know, we'll step in where you can, I guess. Um, but I also had a lot of kickback on the other side. You know, my parents, for an example, my father is very proud of me for struggling and really starting off at the bottom and grasping for straws in order to build my hay house. Um, and my and my mother on the other side, you know, she looks at me and she 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 pushed for it. She's like, you know, put him back on Medicaid. You're struggling to pay your bills. You know, you're missing payments here. You're overdrawing your accounts. Um, you know, she she looked at me and she was she had said she was like, think of where you'd be now if you'd still had that assistance. You know, if I had left my son on Medicaid, I'd save an extra $200 a month. So that's $1,400 a year. And if I got food stamps for $400 a month, you know, that's another couple thousand dollars a year. She's like, think about how much more money you'd have in your pocket today. And I said, you know, mom, that that doesn't really matter because I was still able to provide for him um, and provide better for him. I didn't want to go to the doctor that accepted Medicaid. I wanted to go to the doctor who was open to alternative medicine and and organic foods. And, you know, I wanted something better for him. And I I worked for it. You know, a regular gallon of milk is $3, but I want the organic milk because it's better for his body. Um, 
and and those are the principles that were important to me. Uh, a lot of people looked at me and they're like, you know, you're stupid. There's free money out there. But I don't want free money. You know, it's not free money. It costs somebody. I work really hard and I pay my taxes. And unfortunately, there are people out there who take advantage of that. And I and I've seen it in so many different ways that it's, it's appalling. It's really disgusting how people take advantage of the system. Well, I'm curious to hear that, and really I'm curious about two things. So one is what you've seen in terms of people taking advantage of the system, but I'm I'm also curious if you've seen how the system has affected uh, people who aren't necessarily trying to take advantage of it, but they just say, you know, they say, well, it's there, and I'm going to, uh, you know, use it insofar as I qualify. Well, that's a good, good point. I will start with, the ladder of the two. Um, for the people out there that do qualify, I could probably still qualify for benefits at this point on my income. Um, and I have friends who are my age and we all have young children and we're trying to make it work and are going out there to apply for benefits. I have a girlfriend of mine who's in chronic pain um, and her husband, you know, she's a stay-at-home mom, and her husband has a great job. He makes about $120,000 a year, and she's going to apply for disability. And she could probably receive it, but her husband makes $120,000 a year. They have a very comfortable lifestyle. She does not have to work. She wants disability so that they can continue to afford their Whole Foods groceries. That's not what the system is for. I think, you know, there are people out there that qualify and it's helpful, but if you're living at home, why do you need food stamps? You're living at home with your family. Why are you still taking away from money that people need it for? And then there are people out there, you know, I unfortunately know people who, you know, they received not only TANF, but Medicaid and, you know, subsidized housing and they're drug dealers. So not only are you making income under the table, but you're also taking money away from government programs from people who need it. You know, I know people who, you know, they get brand new iPhones and tattoos and they can't pay their child support, but they'll sit there and trade, you know, trade food stamps for poker games. You know, there are a lot of people out there that do cut corners. Um, and, you know, why is it that our food stamps and those, you know, feed the family programs, you can use them. It comes on a credit card that you can use at the grocery store to buy alcohol for a party. Why is it that we allow those programs to support addictive habits? You can buy cigarettes. You can buy alcohol. You, I've heard of people in Maryland who can actually take cash out of those programs and use them at gambling casinos. It's, there are a lot of ways to cut corners in the system that no one's double-checking on. You know, No one's double-checking a year later what their income status is, or no one's actually going to the caseworker's home to see if there are more people living in the household. You know, all you do when you sign up for benefits is you check a box, yes or no, and no one really double-checks that. Um, and, and where our sense of, of self-responsibility is, where did our, where did our respect go? <laughs> I mean, one of the interesting things is uh, it, it, the government during the New Deal era, they really did try to be more vigilant about inspecting people, but it was so intrusive 
um, that it really, the complaint was that it wrecked people's dignity and that they had somebody snooping in, asking them personal questions about their lives. And so it was basically government was in a bind. It was either we wipe out people's dignity by trying to work really hard to root out fraud, or we um, completely open the floodgates and in effect let uh, a whole bunch of people take advantage of the system. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I think um, morally, it's not the fundamental reason, but I think it's one reason why private charity is morally superior. It's, uh, it, 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 there's people have a choice. I can, you know, if you want to run a private charity that's just going to give money away pretty blindly, you can do that with your own money and your donors voluntarily uh, given money. Or if you want to snoop, nobody has to accept it. But there, it's really you're stuck in a no-win situation when it's the when it's the government making these kinds of assessments. And I, I do see that, but I've seen that work two different ways. When you look at child protective services and you've asked the government to come in and help you look at your family and try and give your children the best possible aspect in a family setting, they do have caseworkers that go in the home. They do make sure that children have a bed to sleep in and they've got groceries and they're not living in a place that's crawling with you know, rodents or anything, and nobody looks at those programs like, hey, I don't want these people coming in my house because they're helping them because they're really generally those people need that help for their children. But when you're looking at people, let's, let's go back to the New Deal. When Truman created some welfare reform in his presidency and he had stated that people needed to come in and out of the home to make sure there was one, you know, that it was a single mother and the father wasn't there, it taught men not to be home. It taught those men that, well, if I'm not home, the government's going to give me more money to feed my children, so I don't have to be there. I don't have to be working. I don't have to be present. I think that that created a huge issue in our welfare policies because almost half of our welfare issues do come from single parents and, and children and the needs that they, they have. Um, I think that it, it is, I think the government, when we are asking, when people are asking for assistance, we need to double, triple check. Not only do I want to see your income statement every quarter, but I want you to pee in a cup. I want to make sure that if you're asking for food stamps and, and government assistance, that we're not giving you money that you can go use on drugs. Because how often does that happen? Statistically speaking, the people that are receiving, you know, when, when you're looking at the welfare queen, you know, everyone thinks of the African-American or white trash mom living at home, just having babies to collect government checks, and some of them are. Um, but while they're doing those checks, where else is that money they are making going? You know, nine times out of ten, I mean, we do have a huge drug abuse problem in our country, and in some states it's legal to smoke marijuana, but... You know, there are a lot of people out there that have habits where they ignore their kids and then they go and pick up their checks and they use them for getting their hair done or, or whatever their selfish needs are instead of using it the way it's supposed to be. There are too many loopholes for people to take advantage of our programs. And, and I think that, you know, we are asking, for, we, we have a pretty big government now as it is, um, but I think when people are asking for help, you beggars can't be choosers. If you need money and you need government assistance, you you got to let someone in your home. You got to show them that you're actually that needy. There's a big difference between a need and a want, and our country just wants things. 
we're such a consumer and consumerist society that we just want everything. Well, you can't pay for everything. You can only have what you can afford. Otherwise, you know, things start to collapse. To me, one of the more the more tragic case, though, is not the the real losers who get uh, handouts. Although I think that's not a good thing. Um, to me, the more tragic case is there. I think there's a lot of people who are they would be on the more ambitious side, more self-supporting, um, but they, in effect because it's just so easy just to get a handout from the government, um, there there's people who really could have made something of their lives and really done what you did and created a kind of either a business or really made a, a happy and successful life for themselves. But because that takes so much effort and it just seems like a quick fix to get a handout, for me the real tragedy is those better people um, who maybe even really need it but in effect become a- addicted to it and 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 they never really get the joy of living an independent, productive life. And getting on their feet. I can I completely agree with that. Um, you know, I think that these programs are for people that do need it. Um, not want it, not that they need extra cushion in their lives, but they they genuinely need some help. And whether that be through and you know, I don't think that we should be giving people money. I think we should be giving people skills. I think that if you want unemployment, I want to see that you're looking for a job again. I think that was great with what Clinton did. It's, okay, if we're going to give you unemployment money, well, I want to see that you're trying to make yourself better. I think that for people who, you know, they need work training or, you know, even those fathers out there that aren't paying their child support, take them parenting classes. If you, if we can't give you something, then let's let's put you in an environment. Let's put you amongst your peers with people that are also struggling, and you can all band together and lift yourself up together. Let's get some support groups. Let's get people we can lean on instead of our big government that no one really approves of. You know, you're just making the problem worse if you continue to lean on your problem. <laughs> So my last question is, what advice would you give to an individual, you know, who in in something like your shoes doesn't yet have a career for themselves, it it may be struggling to raise a kid, and they're trying to make a decision about what should they do, um, both with respect to whether or not they should be seeking help from the government, but more broadly, um, when it seems that they don't have many resources, and yet they do want to make something of their lives, what, what would be your advice? I think that the key to our success is going to be education. And with how easily information is passed along these days, I, you know, we do have many resources. We have libraries. We have, you know, Wi-Fi hotspots. I don't know anyone that actually doesn't have a cell phone no matter what their income is these days. (laughs) And I think the best thing you can do is to find something you love to do. You know, whether you love your kid and you want to watch more kids and you're great at it and you've got the patience for it or, you know, you love to cook, you know, there's a job out there for everyone. There is always an opportunity out there. And the more you can do and the more you can study, the harder you can make your life your passion, the better off your life is going to be. What you put in is what you get out. I think that's the best piece of advice my, my, my father told me is you reap what you sow. 
what you give is what you're going to get. If you're going to be a great person, then you're going to have a great life. You know, when you work hard, you're going to, you're going to go somewhere. If you're going to sit there with your hand out begging on the streets, you're not going to get much because people don't, you know, they don't take kindly to that and they shouldn't because that's not, you know, that's not the great big and bold Americans we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be loud and proud and, you know, you have to work hard to play hard. And you appreciate it that way. Just, you know, keep your head in the game and, you know, try and control your emotions because you can control your life. A lot of people feel helpless and they don't know what to do. And, and I think a lot of people have lost their inner strength in that sense. Either someone's told them they can't or, you know, woe is me. And it's all mind over matter. We are, we are all born the same way. You know, blind, naked, and bald, and we go out the same way. It's what we do in the middle. Hope, thank you for being part of the Debt Dialogues. Hey, not a problem. It's been an honor. So I think this was a really fascinating interview. And I want to read to you a paragraph from Ayn Rand's journals that I think is relevant and really highlights a lot of the key takeaways. Quote, in private and voluntary instances of help to another person, and this is only kindness, not altruism, it works well only when the recipient of help is a worthwhile person who is temporarily in need purely through accident, not through his own nature. Such a person eventually gets back on his own feet and feels benevolence or gratitude toward the one who helped him out. But when the recipient is essentially a passive person, chronically in need through his own nature, the help of another gets him in deeper into parasitism and has vicious results. He hates the benefactor. Therefore, here's the paradox about helping another. One can help only those excuse me, one can help only those who don't actually need it. With the others, help leads only to disaster. Unquote. Now one way in which Hope and I differ is that she thinks there's a legitimate role for welfare. And one reason I don't, although this is not necessarily a fundamental reason, uh, is because to the extent that there are people out there who are genuinely need through no fault of their own and are worthy of help, who are good people, it's the kind of people like Hope, people who are ambitious, hardworking, committed to being self-supporting. Not only those are not only are those the only people who can benefit from being helped by others, those are precisely the kind of people who would receive help in a world without the welfare state. Indeed, fewer of those people would need help uh, if it weren't for the welfare state. The welfare state doesn't reward people for their virtue. It doesn't say you are a moral person who will ultimately succeed, but will generously help you through uh, a rough patch. Rather, the welfare state says that you're to be rewarded not for your virtue, but for your need, for your sheer lack of something. Whether or not you have any virtue, it's your need, whatever its source, is a claim, is an entitlement. And so whether it's bad luck or your own immorality that caused it, your need entitles you to support from others. And it's this, rewarding people for their sheer lack of something at the expense of those who are self-supporting and hardworking that illustrates why the welfare state is inherently immoral. It's this complete inversion of justice. You're punishing the virtuous and you're, you're giving sometimes to good people like hope, but those are exactly the kind of people who would be helped and wouldn't really need it without a welfare state but also, again, to these kind of people who are in need 
by their own lack of virtue. Now, Ayn Rand also mentions that those worthy of help show gratitude towards those who help them. And notice that in her comments, Hope actually expressed gratitude for those who paid the taxes that went to helping her out, as well as the other people in her life that helped her. But look at the welfare state. To add insult to injury, it actually villainizes those who fund it. Who pays for the welfare state? Well, the vast majority, setting aside uh, payroll taxes for Social Security and Medicare, the vast majority goes to f- that uh, funds welfare programs is paid by the so-called rich, mostly those nefarious 1%. If there was any concern for justice in the system then welfare recipients would be having parades to thank the 1%. People like Obama and Elizabeth Warren would be giving speeches lauding the rich for making possible their welfare programs. The fact that they don't, that instead they demonize and revile the successful Americans they're counting on to fund their programs, it really raises a question of what their real goal is. Is it to help people? Well, if you really wanted to help people out of poverty, the first thing you would do would be to fight against the government barriers to lifting yourself out of poverty, for these people to lift themselves out of poverty. All of the regulations that made it harder for Hope to get started in her business, you would fight against that. All of the taxes that make it hard for struggling Americans to make something of their lives, you would fight against that. And above all, you would not tell them that they were helpless victims of society that success is a matter of luck, that opportunity is something only the wealthy have, that mobility is a thing of the past. Yet that is exactly what welfare status like Elizabeth Warren and Barack Obama tell poor Americans. When you combine those facts with things like they don't show any particular interest in whether their programs actually help poor people out of poverty, or the fact that they they fight for tax increases in the rich, even when they concede that these taxes will do nothing to help our debt problems and call it a matter of fairness, the only conclusion you can reach is that their goal is not actually to help people in need, but to punish and smash the successful. With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.